Hello, my name is Joanna Burke, and I'm really thrilled you can come and join me for the third of my six series on evil women. Now, of course, Eve was the original evil woman, allegedly responsible for introducing sin into the world, leading to the banishment of humanity from the Garden of Eden. In the lecture series, I then turned to the much maligned evil uh, witch in the popular fairy tale Snow White. But today, I want to turn our gaze towards a very different woman who has been branded evil. Unlike Eve and the Wicked Witch, this woman was a material flesh and blood presence in history. She is Amelia Dyer, serial killer of babies and of infants. She was the most prolific mass murderer, at least on British soil, in modern British history. With the mythical Eve, I pointed to the misogyny of the early Christian church. The story of the evil witch in Snow White was told as a tale about fears of aging, active women. But Dyer, she was no myth or phantasm within a folk tale. She was a real woman who, over a 30-year period in late 19th century Britain, murdered around 300 infants. She has been dubbed a baby butcher, an angel maker, a ghoul. Until 1979, her monstrous deeds earned her a prominent place in the Chamber of Horrors section of Madame Tussauds. Journalists and true crime biographers have branded her as one of Victorian Britain's most evil murderers, fiendish, diabolical, one of the terrible monsters of Victorian Britain, and my favorite, a mother super devil who slithered her way to baby farming. As late as 2019, one popular author even adopted a physiognomic approach, claiming that Dyer's malevolence could be seen in her fearsome features which reflected the horrific crimes with which she was charged. She was a monstrous Victorian woman, the ultimate, if you like, perversion of motherhood and the nursing profession. No woman could be further removed from the Victorian ideal of the angel in the house, the angel of the house as described by the poet Coventry Patmore in his 1854 classic. Surely, Dyer warrants the label evil woman. Or does she? Amelia Dyer, nay Hobley, um, also went by the, the names Anne Dyer, Anne Harding, and Mrs. Thompson, Thomas, Stanfield, Waitham, and Smith. She was born in the 1830s in the village Pyle Mash to the east of Bristol. Nothing is known about her mother except that she was rendered insane through typhus, um, attempted suicide and was um, died actually in an asylum. Her father, however, was a master shoemaker and so in other words economically comfortable. And the young Dyer was given a good education, not common for girls of her class at that time. She was reportedly intelligent, a voracious reader, a lover of poetry. She worked as a corset maker, trained as a nurse. Um, she married George Thomas, who was 35 years her senior. And when he died, she married William Dyer, an illiterate man who worked in a vinegar factory. Like many nurses at the time, Dyer set up a house of confinement in Totterdam in Bristol. These were houses that looked after pregnant, unmarried women who, since the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, could no longer appeal to the fathers of their children for financial support. Fairly quickly, Dyer began offering to foster and adopt um, the unwanted infants, a fairly unregulated business at the time that came to be known as baby farming. She plied her trade in Bristol, Reading, Cardiff, and London. 
Like many other baby farmers, she would drug her young charges with um, things like Mother's Friend or Godfrey's Cordial, otherwise known as the quietness. It was an open secret that many farmed babies were too drugged to feed or to um, cry. They simply wasted away and died. Dyer accelerated this process. Instead of letting the infants weaken slowly over many weeks, she killed them soon after their mothers handed them over. It's impossible to know how many infants Dyer murdered during her 30 years in the business. Even if the number is only 10 a year, this represents 300 infants. But everyone agrees that this is an underestimate. After all, just in the two months prior to her arrest, Dyer had been given 20 children. And some witnesses at the trial claimed that she collected as many as six babies each day. One mother who surrendered her infant to Dyer was Evelina Edith Marmoth, Marmon, 25-year-old, unmarried, reportedly a pious Christian woman. Marmon had been raised in the countryside, but desperate to earn a living, migrated to Cheltenham, where she worked as a barmaid in the Plough Hotel. Her precarious existence became much worse when, having been led astray by an unnamed man, she gave birth to a daughter, Doris, in November 1895. Obviously, she was incapable of raising this child on her own, so she published an advertisement in the Bristol Times and Mirror, which read, Wanted, respectable woman to take young child. By coincidence, this ad appeared next to another, stating, Married couple with no family would adopt healthy child. Nice country home, terms, £10. Signed, Mrs. Harding. In subsequent correspondence, Mrs. Harding claimed that we are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. We live in our own house. I have a good and comfortable home. We are out in the country and sometimes I am alone a great deal. I do not want a child for money's sake, but for company and home comfort. Myself and husband are dearly fond of children. I have no children of my own. A, a child with me will have a good home and a mother's love and care. We belong to the Church of England. After signing a contract, Marmon handed over her babies, her baby, some clothes and the money. Mrs. Harding promised Marmon that she could visit at any time, adding that, there is an orchard opposite our front door, making it lovely in the summer. However, when Marmon wrote a letter to Mrs. Harding, she never received a reply. Mrs. Harding was Amelia Dyer, and Doris was already dead. A bargeman on the Thames at Reading was the first to uncover evidence of murder. He fished a brown paper bag out of the water. In it was a female infant with white tape tied firmly around her neck. The infant had been strangled. Bricks had been used to weigh down the body. A railway label in the address of a Mrs. Thomas led the police to a rented two-up and two-down terrace house on Kensington's Road. Inside, there were child's children's possessions, tickets, pawning, baby clothes, and newspaper advertisements um, arranging adoptions. Mrs. Thomas was another one of Mrs. Dyer's pseudonyms. The murdered child was Helena, daughter of Mary Fry, an unmarried servant who had been impregnated by a well-off local merchant. When the river was searched, other bodies were quickly discovered, including that of Doris Marmon, who had, uh, her mother had given her to Dyer only 11 days earlier. And the deaths were very quickly traced back to Dyer. 
April 1896, she was placed in remand in Reading Prison, where five months earlier, Oscar Wilde had been transferred to serving a sentence for gross indecency. This was by no means the first time that Dyer's baby farming activities had come to the attention of the authorities. 1879, she had been convicted of child neglect under the Infant Life um, Protection Act, 1872, and sentenced to six months in prison with hard labor. There is some speculation that her prison experience encouraged her to abandon the practice of receiving weekly or monthly payments from the mothers of unwanted children, instead demanding a one-off payment. She could then pocket the money, strangle the infants with white tape or by suff or suffocating them by stuffing handkerchiefs in their mouths, then dump them in shallow graves or in the river. It was later said that by 1896, Father Thames himself refused to conceal any more of these foster children. There was no question that Dyer was the murderer. She even confessed, although many believe this was simply an attempt to shield her son-in-law and daughter from being prosecuted as accomplices. In a letter addressed to the chief superintendent of police, Dyer acknowledged that she would have to answer before my maker in heaven for the awful crimes I have committed. But she did swear that as God Almighty is my judge in heaven, as on earth, neither my daughter, Marianne Palmer, nor her husband, Arthur Ernest Palmer, had anything to do with it. I, myself, and I alone must stand before my maker in heaven to give a answer for it all. The question for the jury was not guilt or innocence. The question was, was Dyer insane, and therefore should she be spared execution? Littleton, Stuart, Forbes, Winslow had no doubt that Dyer was suffering from a terrible mental abnormality. Forbes Winslow was a distinguished, albeit very controversial, um, psychiatrist in Victorian Britain. His involvement in the 1888 Jack the Ripper case included, including his theories about the identity of the murderer were provocative. And in fact, they even elicited suspicion that he might actually be the Ripper. However, in 1896, he took his responsibilities towards Dyer very seriously indeed. After examining and interviewing her in prison, he concluded that she was a good, old, carefully attired monthly nurse, but not of the murderous type. He was equally convinced that Dyer was mentally disturbed. Insanity ran in her family. Dyer herself had attempted suicide at least twice, once by drowning, another time by cutting her throat. She told him, I do not know that I ever hurt anyone but myself, and I often hear voices telling me to go and do certain things, and I go and do it. She frequently looked very terrified when he was interviewing her, claiming that the sounds I hear and the sights I see were so dreadful that I can't tell you. During one interview, she spoke to Forbes Winslow about her mother and her son, both of whom were dead. She could, she said, hear them talking and telling me to come to them. The spirit of my poor boy, Willie, seems to be with me all night. I fancy I could handle his bones and that I was picking them out of the ground. When my poor boy enlisted and went away, I was very ill for three weeks. And when I came to myself, I was beating the rats off who were gnawing on my body and the worms were eating me up. She experienced distressing visions of animals and worms all crawling over her, eating her very vitals. When this description was read out at court, Forbes Winslow 
overheard juror whispering loudly to his neighbor. She may perhaps have dreamt this, but it will soon be a reality. He knew at that stage that there was no point protesting about prejudiced jurors to the judge, Henry Hawkins. I knew at once it was a foregone conclusion. They meant to hang the woman, he later recalled. Forbes Winslow's accounts of Dyer's immental anguish had been confirmed by other alienists, the Victorian term for psychiatrists, who had actually previously diagnosed her as suffering from delusions, hallucinations, depression, and melancholy. At her trial, the Illustrated Police News reported that she rocked herself backwards and forwards as though mentally distressed. Other newspapers reported that she believed that the birds talked to her. She was frequently heard, in fact, talking to herself. All this evidence led Dyer's defence lawyer to argue that she was suffering from homicidal mania. In his view, it was common for people suffering from this mental condition to feel impelled by their mania to kill and injure those nearest and dearest to them. In this case, it was established that she has been kind and affectionate to the infants she had adopted and that their deaths at her hands meant a loss of income to her. There was no sane motive for her conduct, but everything was consistent with a homicidal mania. Well, the prosecution, led by Horace Avery, he was a very famous, by the way, criminal lawyer who was to gain a reputation later in his life as a emotionally cold, merciless, hanging judge, but he would not accept any diagnosis of insanity. Dyer's motive was clear, he insisted, money. He told the jury that her actions have been of the most wicked and diabolical of nature. More important, he accused her of feigning insanity, both in the past and during her trial. He contended that if such a defense of insanity were allowed to prevail, no murderer would ever again be convicted and lunatic asylums would have to be substituted for jails. The psychiatric um, expert called by the government also claimed that Dyer, quote, is of defective power of social of self-control and might be induced to do wrong more readily than the majority as a consequence of such hereditary taint. Yet, there is not sufficient evidence of defect of memory to make me think the prisoner is in any way irresponsible for her actions. According to the McNaughton rules, the defense of insanity required that the person had to be laboring under such a, such a defect of reason or such a condition of mind that she did not know the nature and quality of the act, or if she did, did not know it was wrong. Neither the jurors, jurors nor the judge were convinced that these applied to Dyer, and the jury took five minutes, less than five minutes actually, to find her guilty. When passing sentence, Hawkins made it clear that he believed Dyer to be extremely evil. In just one short, very short paragraph, he refers to her barbarous and wicked act, wrong, wicked and cruel act, wicked and cunningly devised plan, base and willful act of treachery, guilty and wicked and act of barbarity, barbarous, cruelty and wickedness, cruel and wicked system of crime. Hawkins contended that the prisoner has been treacherous to more than one mother, barbarous to more than one child, and in every case for the same sordid motive, to obtain possessions of 10 pounds. Newspapers echoed Hawkins' sentiments, claiming that 
words fail us to describe the revelations of the depth of wickedness scarcely conceivable before. After hearing the death sentence, Dyer reportedly continued to maintain the phlegmatic dem dem demeanor that she had displayed at her trial. Her last letter to her daughter, which was written the evening before her execution, ended with the first two lines of Edward Moat's 1830s hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Dyer was executed at Newgate on the 10th of June, 1896. Earlier that day, three men preceded her to the noose, but by the time Dyer was hanged, their bodies had already been buried under the same flagstones that she walked over to her own death. James Billington, was the executioner, a job that in fact he'd only accepted two years earlier, although within only four years, he was chief executioner of England and of Great Britain and Ireland. Dyer was tied up. Then a procession was formed that led her to the scaffold where she was hanged. She weighed 15 stone, so required a drop of just over 152 centimeters. The executioner's report stated that on the fall of the drop, death was instantaneous, while her prison commission file contended that, on account of her weight and the softness of the textures, rather a short drop was given. It proved to be quite sufficient. Outside Newgate, crowds waited until a black flag was holstered, holstered before returning to their homes. Popular ballads described her gruesome end, asking, what did she think as she stood on the gallows, poor little victims in front of her eyes? Her art, if she had one, must have been callous, the rope round her neck, how quickly time flies. But this sad tale does not end with the execution of Dyer. Her 1896 trial exposed the extent and the horrors of baby farming in Victorian Britain. According to the Metropolitan Police Divisional Returns, in the year to the end of April 9, 1896, the police discovered the corpses of 225 infants. Over 60% of murder cases that came before the coroner's courts were of infants under the age of one year. Yet no one doubted that most murders of infants never came, of course, before the coroner's courts. And they agreed also that the death rate of illegitimate children was at least three times higher than those that of legitimate ones. As one detective explained, Dyer was one of many unscrupulous women and ghouls who because of the secrecy, because of secrecy on the part of their clients can act in ways that are by no means easy to detect. Many commentators compared Dyer's actions with those of other baby farmers. They actually commended Dyer for killing her infants quickly, unlike most women in the business. As the author of an article entitled The Woman's Signal noted just a day after Dyer's execution, people hand over their unwanted children to the baby farmer to be done to death, perhaps quickly and cynically, as Mrs. Dyer did with her adopted children, or perhaps by the really infinitely more cruel method of slow starvation. Similarly, a reporter for the Times reported that Dyer was far from being the worst of the baby farmers since year by year, other children are done to death by methods less speedy and so, and by so much more, and by so much the more brutal um, than those which Mrs. Dyer employed. This journalist um, observed that each infant's life hangs by a very slender thread. And a mother or baby farmer who wished to get rid of a child could achieve this end by neglect, 
exposure, improper food, none of which would leave a trace on which a verdict of murder could be brought in. The child would simply pine and fade away and die by inches after some weeks or months of torture. Now, journalistic interests in Dyer's murders occurred at a time when the rights of children were receiving unprecedented attention. Revelations of Dyer's activities served as an accelerant to these debates. 1884, only 12 years before Dyer's trial, the London Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children had been established. It became the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, 1889, and then in 1895, just a year before Dyer's trial, the NSPCC was granted its royal charter when Queen Victoria became its first uh, royal patron. It was the NSPCC's campaign to eradicate cruelty to children that set the scene for the Ferrari over Dyer's murders. The society's chief argument was that cruelty to infants and to children was morally wrong yet common. They were shocked that Britons seemed much more concerned about the pain inflicted on non-human animals than they were about the most vulnerable of human lives. After all, a leading spokesman pointed out, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals had been founded in 1823, but it took another 60 years for an organization um, to uh, seeking to prevent similar cruelty to children to gain enough support. The NSPCC drew on the rhetoric of animal rights to argue against cruelty to children by employing racist metaphors of savagery and evil. They also contributed to debates about the great chain of being that positioned some humans, white ones, as hierarchically superior to others specifically black ones. This, I think, argument can be illustrated by looking at an influential 1886 article co-written by the Catholic Archbishop Henry Edward Manning and Benjamin Waugh, the founder of the NSPCC. It was published in the Contemporary Review and was provocatively titled The Child of the English Savage. Its chief message was that the child of the English savage was placed on the same level as his dog. They noted that the English savage, savage has learned that it is not safe nor decent to knock his cattle about, but he has all sorts of maxims as to parental rights, his house being his castle and the like which makes it both safe and decent and altogether as it ought to be to knock his child about. At present, the law explicitly forbids ill-treating, abusing, torturing, and insufficient feeding of dogs. What the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children will submit to Parliament is a proposal to do the same for children. Writing in the Child's Guardian four years later, he returned to this theme. He lamented that Christians, in other words, he's distinguishing here Christians from pagans and savages. He said Christians should be as interested as pre in preventing cruelty to children as they are in the prevention of cruelty to animals. This broadening of focus was necessary, he insisted, if reformers were to tackle the vilest, blackest shame of our land, which was the famine and the pain of tiny staggerers to the grave. Today, the rights of infants and children not to be mistreated is taken for granted, although, of course, child abuse is extremely widespread. 
But this was not the case in Victorian Britain. The, the rights of some, it has to be admitted, animals not to be treated cruelly was enshrined in Victorian law, but similar rights were withheld from children. The NSPCC's campaign faced three basic obstacles. The first was the rights of parents, primarily fathers, it has to be admitted, to exert unlimited governance over their property, that is, their wives and children. This was part of the reason Dyer took up baby farming in the first place as a married woman. Her father's inheritance belonged to her cruel and greedy husband. Infants, too, were a form of private property, which meant that there was resistance to their treatment being regulated by the state. The second obstacle focused on the value of the lives of infants born to impoverished, unmarried girls and women. Were such offsprings truly innocent? Did they actually possess that divine spark of humanity or were they more like animals? At the very least, might they be tainted from conception by their mother's immorality? At the very least, they were tainted by her moral degeneracy. Finally, were infants truly sentient? Did the infants killed by Daya and other baby farmers truly feel pain? Now, as I argue in greater detail in my book, The Story of Pain, most respected scientists and philosophers of the time in 19th century Britain believed in fact that infants were not fully sentient. This was not always the case. Earlier scholars, 18th century, for example, had believed that, in fact, infants were exquisitely sensitive. But from the 1870s, experimental embryology purported to show that the nerve fibers of fetuses, infants, and young children developed at different rates. In other words, infants were not fully sentient. There was a great chain of feeling, which ran parallel to the great chain of being, which placed adult male Europeans at one end and infants, slaves, and animals at the other. This profoundly racist science was used to justify the subjugation of humans judged to be lesser beings, as well as non-human animals. It was even defended by very prominent social commentators, such as just one example here, my book gives lots of others, the philosopher James Scull, uh, Sully in his Studies of Childhood, which was published the year before um, Dyer's trial. Sully argued that children belong to the animal community, having more in common with the dog and cat, the pet rabbit or dormouse, than with and than with that grown-up human community. This was not surprising, he went on, if evolutionary principles were to be believed. Sully um, was a believer in what was called at the time recapitulation theory, in which they believed that the infant recapitulated or repeated, if you like, the history of the species. As he explained, if the order of development of the individual follows and summarizes that of the race, we should expect the child to show a germ, at least, of the passionateness, that's his word, the quarrelsomeness of the brute and of the savage, before he shows the moral uh, qualities distinctive of civilized man. That he, often, that he often shows so close a resemblance to the savage and to the brute suggests how little ages of civilized life with its suppression of these furious impulses have done to tone down the ancient and carefully transmitted instincts. The child at birth and for a long while after may then be said to be representative of wild, untamed nature. 
Well, children needed educated, he believed, in order to evolve higher than animals or savages before they can really become fully sentient, moral members of mankind. So in other words, the point I'm making here is that this is the context in which the debate about the cruelties of baby farming emerged. Now, I'm not suggesting that Dyer and other commentators were au fait with these scientific and philosophical theories. They probably weren't. But it is to suggest that they were immersed in a culture that had a very different understanding of the nature of infancy than we do today. Now, of course, mothers loved their infants. They laughed with their infants first, smiled, they wept when they cried, they deeply, deeply mourned their deaths. But difficult choices had to be made. And the people who were making these decisions were predominantly male. When the all-male framers of the 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act removed the responsibilities of fathers to provide financial support to the infants they had sired, they were making a decision about the value of maternal and infant lives. When the all-male MPs refused to give women the vote, property rights, access to easy divorce or equal pay, they were consigning millions of women and their offspring to poverty. When societies were established in 1823 um, by prominent men to regulate cruelty towards animals, but not cruelty towards infants until 1884, hierarchies of care and compassion were being established. So when public horror was expressed about the mass murderer Dyer and the cruelty of other baby farmers, the NSPCC saw an opportunity to intensify their campaign. In 1894, Reverend Benjamin Ward, the founder and director of the um, NSPCC, was called to give evidence before the Select Committee of the House of Lords on the Infant Life Protection Bill and Safety of Nurse Children Bill, which had been established at least in large part as a response to the horrors of the revelations um, over baby farming and Dyer's murders. His testimony shocked many listeners. War reminded the commissioners that in the UK, 50,000 children were born to unmarried women every year. And baby farmers were responsible for the slow starvation of thousands of these infants. He noted that it was impossible for their mothers to maintain the children whilst the children are at their breasts or in their arms. They must be nursed for them if, their mother, if the mothers are to provide for them. Wall stated that it was not uncommon for mothers to continue to make payments long after the infants had already died. When asked by the mothers, do not take the trouble before making the payment to inquire whether the child was alive or not, he responded, I do not say that they do not take the trouble. They would like many of them to do it but they dare not risk the exposure of their connection with the sad story. He confidentially, uh, controversially contended that Mrs. Dyer was actually the most saintly of baby farmers I have come across. Why? Because she gives 60 seconds of pain. She gives six seconds of pain and the others give six weeks of it. England is wrong altogether about this giving sudden pain and sudden death, and we hang those who do it. But six weeks of pain, six weeks of faintness and dizziness, and finally a collapse, all that is legally little. He pleaded to the government to instigate a system of certification so that mothers could be confident that their children, their infants, were going to be safe. However, regulating adoption, um, strengthening laws aimed at preventing or aimed at protecting, I should say, infants was no easy task. 
1872 Infant Life Protection Act required people who took in infants under one year of age to be registered, but it was ineffectual. The public attention, though, generated by Dyer's murders, persuaded the Home Secretary that improvements were, in fact, imperative. The following year, an amendment was passed that required local authorities to register and to supervise people who cared for other women's children who were aged up to five years. Visitors also could be appointed to check up on baby farmers, removing infants that they believed were at risk. Unfortunately, though, exemptions were made for baby farmers who charged more than 20 pounds, giving so-called more respectable uh, carers immunity. The chief limitation, though, was of this, this new law. The chief limitation was pointed out by the Times. They reported that Mrs. Dyer's profession can be put down by law or carried on under adequate supervision and control. But it will be no such easy matter to deal with parents who have no need to call in outside help from anyone. In other words, the professionalization of baby murder, either by slow starvation or the hasty tightening of a cord, could be regulated. But that would not eliminate the underlying systemic causes that made unmarried mothers desperate enough to allow their own children to simply waste away. So, evil women, what about Amelia Dyer herself? It's not my aim to absolve her of guilt. She murdered hundreds of infants. But it is to suggest that emotional pain is not reserved for those pure of heart. Even people who do very bad things suffer. It is also not my aim to retrospectively diagnose Dyer with a mental illness and therefore suggest that she should have been imprisoned rather than executed. You know, in other words, what, what is labelled sane, what is labelled insane are historically mutable concepts. What is bad in one era becomes or can become mad in another. We just have to think of diagnoses such as postpartum mania, schizophrenia, sadism. But her life had been one of hard knocks. Her husband was violent. In her words, he was cruel to me, and I worried over his treatment very, very much. I left him three times. She had inherited a good deal of money from her father, but this was before the Married Women's Property Act of 1882, so the money belonged to her husband. He spent it on himself. Today, Dyer would be called a battered wife. Dyer was clearly a deeply disturbed woman with a history of mental illness. Her mother had attempted suicide and died in a lunatic asylum. November 1891, Dyer had attempted to cut her own throat and so was admitted into an asylum. She accused the Gloucestershire Asylum of having abused her pulling her knuckle out of joint. They beat and cruelly and cruelly ill-treated me and put me in a padded room, she recalled, adding that it made her feel that it would be no sin to destroy myself. In a letter to her daughter, Dyer confessed that, I have no soul. My soul was hammered out of me at the asylum. December 1893, she was admitted to the county asylum for pauper lunatics at Wells in Somerset for attempting to drown herself. According to her admission report, she was, quote, suicidal and dangerous, patient, very violent, attempted to strike me with a poker, threatened to break my skull, swears at me, says she has no peace in the world, only in heaven, says she will kill herself. Voices tell her to has attempted suicide. Patient is robust and stout looking with gray hair, very few teeth. August 1895, she was readmitted to the Gloucester Lunatic Asylum. While in custody for her crimes, she attempted suicide a third time, this time using her boot laces. 
She tied them round her neck using exactly the same position and knot that she had used when killing the infants. It is also important to recognize that while in no way excusing her actions, some commentators, even at the time, were sympathetic because they understood the underlying causes of infant murder. Now, admittedly, most journalists refused to um, demonstrate compassion. After Dyer's death had been carried out, death sentence had been carried out, one newspaper reported that the utterly despicable character of Mrs. Dyer's crime may be judged from the fact that not a single word has been raised by the public on behalf of a commutation, commutation of her sentence to penal servitude on the grounds that she is a woman. She has gone to the gallows unpitied and hated. For Mrs. Dyer, no one ever asked for mercy. But this was actually not strictly true. Sections of the women's movement at the time were indeed understanding. On the day Dyer was hanged, the women's penny paper published an article entitled The Baby Farming Murders. Now, they were not pardoning Dyer for her actions. Indeed, they called um, them repulsive and admitted they felt horror when thinking about them. However, they drew attention to the reasons baby farmers existed in the first place. The unnamed author admitted that in ordinary circumstances, a little baby appeals irresistibly to the sympathies and protective instincts of the mother sex. This sentiment, they said, was not an unalterable instinct, but the development of a high order of conscience and emotion. In other words, an appeal to the chain of being or the civilizing process with all its racist associations. Indeed, the author contended that the really awful circumstances in this and all other baby farming cases is less the callous cruelty of the baby farmer than the more cruel and callous heartedness of the parents who fling away their offspring to endure any fate that may await at a mercenary's stranger's hands. Parents obviously knew that the money was not sufficient to care for their child. But it was equally obvious that mothers would experience, the author continued, the physical and moral agony when handing their children over to a stranger. Although the natural instinct of motherhood was certainly weaker than the poets have sung, yet they are not extinguished without an anguish that is no less terrible to bear than it is damaging to the moral nature of the unhappy girls who either themselves kill their infants or hand them over to the baby farmer, knowing well that this means a cruel death. In other words, unhappy girls who had been seduced by men were not without moral blame, but nevertheless, they were not innately evil and their capacity for suffering must be acknowledged. The crucial point for the author of this article was to remember that two people, were responsible for bringing life into the world. The only correct principle, therefore, was to acquire the two parents of every child to be jointly responsible for supplying its needs. The great defect of our present arrangement was that men were not regarded as responsible for the care and nurturance of their infants. Why? Because, this author continued, the male sex has made the laws and institutions that absolved themselves of liability. The author concluded that it is the poverty and disgrace, it is poverty and disgrace that makes the mother neglect her child, the little baby she naturally loves, and leave it to the tender mercies of the baby farmer. So long as fathers may shirk their duties, Mrs. Dyer's will be sought and will, alas, too surely be found. It was a powerful call for female empowerment in Victorian Britain. 
what can we conclude? Amelia Dyer committed acts of extreme cruelty towards the babies in her charge. She also abused the impoverished, desperate, unmarried mothers who she tricked into believing that they were giving their loved infants a better life. A life, as she promised Evelina Marmon, a life in the countryside with an orchard opposite our front door. But are we to agree, are we to agree with the writers who say that she was fiendish, diabolical, one of the most terrible monsters and a mother super devil? I for one cannot bring myself to call Amelia Dyer evil. She was a battered wife, deprived of her inheritance by a cruel husband and suffered extreme emotional pain, so much that she attempted suicide at least three times. It is so much easier to point our fingers at individual wrongdoers like Dyer than at man-made and deliberately constructed systems of morality, religious dicta, um, law, women's lack of rights over their own bodies and properties, and finance, discriminatory employment practices, which made women's lives unlivable. Let me end then with a ballad about Dyer and the intolerable choices facing young unmarried mothers in 19th century. The first stanza shows pity for young women like the barmaid, Evelina Marmon, and the servant, Mary Fry who had been led astray by men unknown and indifferent to their responsibilities. It goes, Poor girls who fell down from the straight path of virtue, what could they do with the child in their arms? The fault they committed they could not undo, so the baby was sent to the cruel baby farm. But the chorus to this ballad exposes the other side to this tale. Mrs. Dyer, a scapegoat, the evil one, the witch to be burnt at the stake for society's sins. The chorus goes like this. The old baby farmer, the wretched Mrs. Dyer, at the old Bailey, her wages is paid. In times long ago, we'd have made a big fire and roasted so nicely that wicked old jade. <laughs>